Well, hello there. How are you going? Thanks for tuning in to The Price of Entry. It's great to see you here. In this week's episode, I sit down with a couple of mates who, at a certain point in their life, went, hmm, it'd be nice to be able to go out to the pub, have fun, and not necessarily need to drink alcohol. They put their heads together. It started with an idea over a beer, about beer, and it ended up in a company called Big Drop, which is now available. This conversation happened at about 5.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time and about 8.30 p.m. in the UK. So I'm a little bit hazy at the beginning. This is a really fascinating conversation for me seeing as I currently work within the beer industry, but also from the perspective of learning about what it was like to interview two people at the same time. Prior on this podcast, I've only ever spoken to one person at a time, so I learned quite a lot about hosting when there's two people to talk to. Turns out, probably need to direct my questions towards a specific person rather than just throwing it out there. So I learned a lot about that but also learn a lot about what it's like to start up a business from scratch that makes beer, but also beer that doesn't have any alcohol in it. It was a great chat. We talk about their company. We talk about craft beer in general. We even talk about the idea of starting a company called Shajam. Yes, you heard correctly. If you'd like to listen more, carry on. Thank you for listening. To the price of entry, my name's Brendan. Enjoy. Excellent. Hey, all good. Well, James and Rob, thank you very much for joining me all the way from London. I think this is no the third international one that I've done so far. I've had uh, North Carolina, I've had the north of Spain, and now I've got Fancy Pants London. What time hey, is it over there for you guys right now? Covering continents, uh, it is it is all of twenty to nine in the evening. It's nearly my bedtime, <laughs> and I don't want to admit what time it is over here right now. But I think the only way to try and introduce what you guys do, I think I'd love to hear you guys explain your brand as if I've never heard of it before, and how did that come about? So I'll 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 take that one, James. I'll take yep. that one. Basically, why we get out of bed in the morning is to make great beer, but beer that is so good that you do not miss the fact that there's no alcohol in it. That's that's what we do, um, and we're all about giving everyone choice, so that if for any reason, whatever that reason is you don't want to have the alcohol but you still want the beer then you can do and you can have a great tasting craft beer that just so happens not to have the alcohol in it that's what we do i love it i love it so how the heck did that come about because i can imagine sitting around with mates going i'm going to open a brewery because for context like australia has i've read two different articles that have two different numbers one says between 620 and 700 registered brewers in australia that's yeah. that's a I lot of people I, 
a lot of people making beer. I saw something similar the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to go, we're going to do it, but we're going to make it with no alcohol. What were people's reactions to that? Uh, broadly, you're a fucking idiot. And- <laughs> and point b from genuinely a lot of our mates who probably now do drink big drop um they were like oh come on if you're gonna open a brewery at least open one that's gonna make alcoholic beer you bastard yeah just just do an alcohol-free one on the side come on do the do this do the serious stuff as well brew brew a full strength and it's like well no that's not the point you got to go all in or all out, as it were. All out. Yeah, we're all out. Yeah. I like that approach. So how did that come about? Where did where did you get this crazy idea? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take full credit for the idea. <laughs> <laughs> so James, I don't even know why you're on this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna, sorry. I, gonna, I, gonna, I thought it was my kids' parents' right evening. Right. I've dialed into the wrong call. <laughs> <laughs> Almost everything that came after that, someone else can take the credit for. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm going to take credit for the idea. Um, and um, it was it all came about because uh, what seems like a long, long time ago, in a in a city far, far away, I was a lawyer, um, and I used to have to take out my clients and my prospective clients. And it's a technical English term, but the term is get well and truly boozed up with them. And at the end of the session, convince them to give my law firm work. That was a big part of what my job was. Um, And then uh, back in, uh, again, seems like a long time ago now, 2014, my wife and I had our first son. And I just decided I was going to be a stand-up 21st century kind of a dad. And turning up because uh, I was drinking in the afternoon. That's the thing is like, I go out for lunch. Mm. I didn't go to the like pub in the evening with a couple of mates. I was going out for lunch and like proper lunches. Like people I've noticed a lot of industries think, oh, yeah, we're the hard boozers of, you know, the, the all these professions. Like, no, 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 no. Come, come and come and do lunch with you us. You know nothing. I was talking, yeah, you know nothing. <laughs> I, I always contest this because I'm from the advertising industry. And I'll always maintain that the ad industry are harder boozers, but they they throw a few other uh, substances in for good measure usually. So, <laughs> hey, lawyers have got a p- pretty good reputation of that as well. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, although I couldn't possibly comment, obviously, uh, obviously. But you know who I have noticed go hard, and it's not like I mean, yep, advertising lawyers, consistent lunches, you know. When you watch accountants or bank people let down their hair. They've been some of the absolute loosest and like heaviest because like they're all bound up and it's all like numbers yeah, for so long. When they're allowed to get out, they go ape. Yeah, it gets yeah pretty they, go, raw. They, go big, they go big one time. Yes, See, it's, it's the <laughs> hard, solid drinking of of the lawyering profession that I was in, where it was just like yeah, one in the afternoon, four days out of five. And if you're back in the office before five o'clock in the afternoon, your colleagues are saying, why are you here? Why aren't you still in the pub? Did you lose the contract or something like that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, completely. (laughs) Oh, did it even go that bad? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Oh, that lunch. Let's have another beer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's go to the pub. That's right. That's it. Yeah. You you clearly, you're not very good at your job. So, but then (laughs) in 2014, I had my eldest son, my first born, God bless him. Um, and turning up at seven o'clock in the evening after work 
three sheets of the wind saying to my wife, oh, no, 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 I can give him a bath. It's not a problem. Let me hold the baby. I want to hold the baby. I love my baby. That didn't go down very well. Um, so I stopped drinking for about six months. Just totally stopped. But I was still going out with all these guys and with not very many women in the industry that I worked in. So it was mostly guys going out all afternoon, but not drinking. And, and how I was that as an well, initial sort of like, which was harder? Was it the like the saying no in the cold turkey or what was the sort of social reception to abstaining? Was that challenging? It was actually, it was actually all right, to be honest with you. There was, there was more than a few people, because you've got to remember, like, this is a proper hard drinking um, uh, sector. And there was more than a few people went, Mm. Oh, yeah, fair play, actually. You just and it, the difficult like to start with, I thought, oh no, I'll just I'll just drink a little bit less, you know, so mm. I'll just have like one off, one on. Mm. What do you say in Australia? The wedgie, you know, you have a you have an alcoholic drink and then a soft drink and then an alcoholic drink. Somebody said that you call that a wedgie. You're looking at me like, no, that's not that's a, thing, so it's, look, we've been we've been had, I think. That's nah, I think state that's to state. Bad. Like if you ever talk to a South Australian, try to figure out what sort of pints and schooners they don't call oh, them yeah. that they've got all weird different names like pony oh, right. and midi and uh, butcher okay. oh, I, won't, I won't mention that again on an australian podcast and, and <laughs> so but so i tried that and that was actually yeah. quite hard but as soon as you go like cold turkey i was like oh yeah yeah fair place no problem but the, like i'm sitting in all these bars and pubs and restaurants and all the rest of it and the only drink that you can get that isn't because I think you can't sit there and drink orange juice or coffee or Coke all afternoon. That's not a thing. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. So I'd ended. I, I, I'd end up drinking um, alcohol-free lager, yeah. and yeah. you know it's, it was all right. But there's only there was only one brand. There's one brand in the UK at the time. There was only one brand. That would have been Heineken, wouldn't it? No, no, yeah. Heineken came after. Pre Heineken. Bex, Bex Blue, Bex Alcohol yeah, Free, right. Blue in the UK. And do you know what? It was all right. It was fine. I, I don't, didn't have a beef with it at all. Mm. I was reasonably happy drinking it. But the point was is that you couldn't get an IPA. You couldn't get a pale ale. You couldn't get a dark beer. You could, there was just this whole gap. You know, I'm looking at the bar selling alcoholic beers, alcoholic craft beers, when I can get 14 different styles of beer from seven different countries in bottles, in drafts and everything else. And then I go up and say, I want a non-alcoholic beer. And they're like, well, there you go. There's the Bex Blue. And as I said, I've got no beef with Bex Blue at all, but it's like, yeah, but I don't, I'm not particularly a lager drinker. I like to drink IPAs. So it's like, well, I don't want a lager. I want an IPA. So I did some research, looked around and it was like, okay, no, nobody has done craft non-alcoholic beer it doesn't exist as a thing but i know that people drink non-alcoholic beer because otherwise they wouldn't make it so what what if we could do for non-alcoholic beer what craft beer did for beer which is just make it more flavorsome make it more tasty give people choices that and that was it it wasn't any more particularly complicated than that and um then I, I I'll stop banging on now, and James can chip in. But James is a we, we've been friends for a very very long time, and um, I sat down with him in a pub over a beer and said, "This is my idea. What do you think?" And what was your reaction, James, to that? Uh, I think there was a long, thoughtful pause, uh, and then it was like, "Yeah, like you know, I, I've 
I've heard crazier ideas in my time. Um, and I thought, yeah, it's, that's a thing. That's a, that's a goer. So I think from, from that point on, it was a, what do you call it? Um, and B, how do you make it? Uh, and I can do the, what do you call it? So I'm, I was a graphic designer for 20 years around agencies. I got into, uh, technology businesses and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm kind of from the background of startups and getting stuff done and branding and all that. I can do all that. That's absolutely fine. But then it's the the case of how do you make it um, w- w- while keeping all the flavor in there and making sure that you've got a really good quality craft beer. Um, and Rob and I have probably drunk enough beer in our time that if we saw, sat and thought about every single pint we had, we probably could have cobbled together an idea of how you put a beer together. Um, but we needed a we needed someone with a bit more chops than Rob and I, who were uh, kind of um, could could sit in a pub and, and whinge about the quality of a beer, but wouldn't know the the back end of a of a of a um, kettle or a mash or a bag of hops to save our life. So that that was our next challenge was finding finding our head brewer, and uh, Johnny Clayton, who's who's still a head brewer, um, and possibly the 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 um. Who, who needs more recognition for what he's done for the alcohol-free beer space than he probably gets in terms of coming up with a with a technique of naturally brewing amazing alcohol-free beer um, without reverse osmosis or heating the alcohol off or doing anything weird to it. It's mm. a, for all intents and purposes, a natural brewing process. We don't do anything out of the ordinary. Which is different. Yeah. Yeah, we, we say I your mean, Bex Blues you, so and your Heineken. Your Bex Blues, yeah. you'll heat the alcohol off. You'll get a few others who'll use um, a centrifuge to pull the alcohol out. Um, and there's a few other, uh, vacuum distillation as well. Um, and Johnny didn't want to do any of that. He wanted to make, he wanted to see if he could do it properly and, and do it naturally. And when we, Rob and I went to him and said, oh, we've got, got this idea, we've, we think we've got a name for it. We think we want to start with this beer. And um, we want to make a really good alcohol-free beer. And his immediate response was, no, you don't want to make an alcohol-free beer. You want to make a really good beer that happens to be alcohol-free. And that's kind of what we base everything on, is that it, it's a really good beer first, just so happens to be non-alcoholic. Um, and he he went away, thought about it, did a few test brews. And I think the stout was the first one we did um, mm. and, and did two or three different variations of it. And he, he pretty much nailed the stout um, from the get-go. In a, in a couple of months. Wow. Um, yeah, the stout is the one. Where I don't think we've ever really changed the recipe for the stout in five no. years. And is, so, uh, uh, one of our guys worked out that we think it's the most awarded beer in the world, beer awards ever, or something crazy like that. I, I, yeah. I, yeah, they'll kill me for not knowing what it is off the top of my head. But it was like, yeah, put out a press release going, oh, my God, this is so amazing. This beer is so completely, unbelievably amazing. Uh, and it was genuinely, like, I, honestly, I will stand behind that beer any day of the week. I think it's a great beer. That would have yeah. just brought such incredible, um, like, people's reactions must have been almost dumbfounded at that, especially something like a stout and something that's that heavier style of beer. That would have tripped people's brains. The the trick is to get people to try it. That's the hard bit because the, you know, as we found from the start is that um, if you invite people to try your alcohol-free beer, their their mind will be set on the fact that it's an alcohol-free beer and 
how the packaging looks and, and what the liquid looks like and anything else is all secondary once they know it's alcohol-free because, because they're, they're prefixed to know that alcohol-free yeah. beer traditionally isn't great. It doesn't, it's, it's, it definitely doesn't fit into the craft area mm. of things. Yeah. So if you say to someone, do you want to try our alcohol-free beer? They'll go, nah, no, alcohol-free beer is shit. And you go, okay, well, that's that person lost. I'll ask the next person. But then you quickly learn. If you say to someone, do you want to try our award-winning craft beer? Uh, which, you know, even early on, it picked up award- it picked up awards in full-strength categories because there was no such thing as a low-no category when we started doing beer awards. If you say to someone, do you want to try our award-winning craft beer? They'll go, love to. And you, they're over and they're drinking it, they're enjoying it, they're giving it, you know, they're, they're getting the... Uh, the aroma in that you know w- washing out of their palate all that sort of thing they're really into it and you say to them well you know what sort of strength do, do would you say that is and they'll go oh you know especially with the when we bought the pale ale out they'll say oh you know it, it's quite light so it's probably about 3.8 something like that and you say no it's, it's a 0.5 it's technically alcohol free and they'll go pardon huh sorry I, I could have sworn you just said that's alcohol free yeah it's it's about the same strength as a glass of orange juice or a banana uh, and then, and then you've got them because then you've changed, you, you, you flipped it, and you've not talked about ABV. You've not talked about it's an alcohol-free beer first. It's a great beer that happens to be alcohol-free, and there is still that education process of still getting people, convincing people to taste it. Because as soon as they've tasted it, you, you, you'll pretty much convince them that they they need to buy at least one of our styles of beer, and we have many different styles. Uh, but if you go in with the offering that it's a alcohol-free beer you, you, you do still face a slightly uphill struggle and within the beer category as well I feel, especially the craft category i feel like there's a few breweries over here i'm not going to mention names but i went into one and i'm looking at their wall and everything's six percent plus yeah all hazy ipas and it's all this crazy stuff and i'm like look i love craft as much as the next man but if i need a drive it's, and it was yeah. all about brewing these like high ABV yeah. beers. Yeah. And it was like, and, and that was their narrative. That was their, you know, it was part of it. It was like hazy and big. It was just like, oh, that's so coming. And that's, and that's into, fine. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I was going to say that, that, that's fine. And it comes back to this point for me. It's about choice. There's like, mm. I'm sitting here right now drinking a, what am I drinking? A 5.3% American Pale Ale. Aromatic, yep. fruity, and it is delicious. It's delicious. And that's great. But as part of my sort of drinking portfolio, my repertoire, if you want, you know, the beers that I've got access to, I also want access to something that is alcohol-free, but also has hoppy aromas and mouthfeel and bit of juice and everything else. And also I want access to, I love stouts. You know, the the reason that our first beer was a stout is because I could not find alcohol-free stout. That's why it was a stout. Everyone was like, why the fuck are you making an alcohol-free stout? No one even drinks stout, let alone alcohol-free stout. And I was like, well, I'll drink alcohol-free stout. That was why we made it. So, but, but I also want access to amazing 9% Russian Imperial stouts because I'm not, I'm not going to drink that on a Monday lunchtime, but that's, you know, on a Friday night, I'll enjoy that. So it's just about like genuinely for me, like big drop, it's about pushing. If ABV is a spectrum, all we're doing is pushing it down and allowing people to enjoy great beer across the entire ABV spectrum 
from non-alcoholic yeah. all the way up to you know however strong you can make a great beer that, that's and that that's sort of thing it. that doesn't have to be over a period of a week that can be the period of an evening that can be yeah. you know yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll start you know I'll, I'll go for a you know i'll go for a glass of Nipa that looks like a glass mm. of orange juice with a head that it's so thick that no light will permeate it, and you can start on one of those, and you might just go, well, that, you know, that's me licked. I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna have a big drop now, and it's kind of ABV be damned, yeah, to a certain extent, where it's like it's whatever fits in with your your life, and it's acknowledging um, that the craft drinker is likely to try multiple things. And especially if it's at a venue or if they're at a bottle shop is, especially, you know, during lockdown, one of the things that I like to do was try a few different other ones. And it's acknowledging that it's not, it's, and for a lot of drinkers, they've evolved from just, I'm going to buy my one slab of this. And that's all I drink. This is the one pub that I go to. And this is the one draft that I have. And that's it. And I don't explore out from there. Mm -hmm. So it's admitting that, yeah, the customer is going to try multiple things and you guys can fit in there nicely. It just and comes it, right back to that word choice. It's just all yeah, that yeah. choice and options. And we're all about that, you know, I, uh, I, Rob still drinks beers. I quit drinking beer at the start of the year. I might go back to drinking full strength beer. I, but that's choice. But at the same time, I want to be able to walk into a pub and I don't want to walk into a pub and have to declare what ABV I want to drink. I want to walk into a pub and ask for something and know exactly what I'm going to get in return, which goes back to the whole thing about, you know, when we started this and our friends were saying, well, can you do some full strength as well? It's like, no, because you have to go into a pub and if you ask for a big drop, you know exactly what you're going to get. You don't have to say, can I have a big drop 0.5% because you don't walk into a pub and say, can I have a Camden 4.3? That's not part of the conversation or how you ask for stuff. So you want to go in and you go, oh, pint big drop pale ale, please. And full stop nothing yeah. no numbers or percentage points mentioned yeah. um yeah. and that then also just removes some of the taboos about where people still have about standing there drinking an alcohol free you don't you don't want to wear the sign over your head and if you can ease that by knowing what you're asking for is exactly what you think you're going to get that it takes it out of the conversation it removes any confusion between the bar the bar staff and the, the or the server and the customer, you just go pint a big drop, done. And then if you want to move on to a stronger one, that's fine as well. But you're not going to mention the ABV then either. <laughs> yeah. And how did you find that piece as far as that education for the staff behind the bar, representing your brand and representing what you're about, and not having them go, oh, it's an alcohol-free beer first, but having them understand that it's about the craft, it's about the yeah. beer, it's about the liquid. And it just happens to be like, how did you get that across? It's a uh, no, yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's an it's an ongoing task. I think you know, as with teaching anyone about new drinks or drinks categories or anything behind the bar, there is a constant educational thing, and new styles come out, new variations come out, completely new drinks categories come out in terms of drinking vinegars and. Uh, 0.5% and uh, alcohol-free botanicals and all that sort of thing. And there is the education there and it's a constantly ongoing thing. I think that, um, you know, we, we have people in our team who specifically go out and teach bar staff how to talk about alcohol-free and and not not to talk about it like a commiseration prize anymore in that, oh, you know, what have you got for the non-drinker sort of thing? Well, mm. you know, it's like, well, no, it's a, it's, a le- it's a level playing field. Everyone's welcome, mm. especially in pubs and bars nowadays where, you have to diversify because you have to get as many people through the door as you can. Um, And I think it's becoming easier to have that conversation, but 
um, servers, bar staff, people in restaurants, and that sort of thing are kind of our front line for educating people about what AF is now and these days. So we have to make sure that they're getting the conversation right on our behalf. Mm, absolutely. I just want to take the conversation back to those early days. So you've had your beer at the pub, you're on board with the idea, you found your head brewer. What were the next steps from there? Did you guys have to build a brewery? Was there already a brewery you had access to? And like, did you both quit your jobs? Where did you get funding? Like, how did that initial startup to get the momentum go come about? Um, so we, I, I was, I was never of the view that we should build a brewery, um, and there, there were two reasons for that. The, the first was purely financial, because like probably like something in the UK, uh, we would need about one hundred and fifty thousand. GBP, I don't know, what's that, 300,000 Australian dollars, something like that, ballpark, Uh, didn't have that money, didn't have that money. So that was like, okay, so I could go and try and raise that money. But at that point in time, non-alcoholic beer, very much not a thing. So no one was going to lend me the money to to build a Mm. brewery. Um, But also, I was of the view that either I was going to fail very very quickly or it was going to be a you know not it was going to be very successful and i'm not saying that we're there yet i'm not saying that we're very successful but i thought you know this this is either going to fail really quickly or this is going to be a really really good thing and if it's a really really good thing i'm going to have to build a bigger brewery and then a bigger brewery and then a bigger brewery so let's let's get someone else to to brew it for us um and also and also i did from the beginning have the sort of vague idea that there was a potential to take it outside of the UK as we've done in Australia and the US and Canada because craft beer sort of over the last 10, 15 years has largely defined itself by reference to provenance. So if you talk about craft beer, you want to know where's it brewed. That's what I want to know. I want to know where, where is this beer brewed? To the extent that, you know, in the UK, um, it's probably the same in Australia. You've got breweries in London that can't sell their beer in Manchester because people in Manchester drink beer from Manchester. They don't want to drink beer from London. Fucking Southerners, you know, and then mm. Londoners don't want to drink beer from Manchester. They go with the local. Well, I was like, mm. yeah, yeah, it's completely, it's a, it's a local place, a local place. And I was like, well, we, we don't really need to talk about that because the way that we, you know, the first thing that we talk about our beer is, yeah, okay, it's a great beer but then it's alcohol-free. And then as soon as you get people into the alcohol-free bit, that's what they want to talk about. Okay, it's great beer and it's alcohol-free. And then I was like, well, if you do that, then we could brew it anywhere. You know, we so we could go and brew it. And this is like way back in the day, so I wasn't even thinking in these terms. But So this is what we do now. It's brewed. Our beer is brewed in Australia. If you buy a can of Big Drop in Australia, it's brewed in Australia. Um Surely it will be brewed um, a place in Sydney. If you beer, if you buy our beer in Chicago, it's brewed in Chicago. So then, so then you get into this like wonderful debate, which I've always found very fascinating. Looking from the outside in, almost with craft mm. beer, you know what what defines craft beer? Because people <laughs> get really, really angry sometimes about ownership of production facilities and that was something that again like way back when when i was a lawyer looking at it going well why why do you care about that i'm guessing you probably buy clothes 
and you don't care where they're made. I'm guessing you probably buy food and you're not worried about what farm it's. And some people are. So, you know, mm. I'm not, some people are like really, really into it, but you, few people are exclusively about that. Mm. So why can't we just brew it locally and say, yeah, okay, look, this is brewed in Chicago. Um, so that was, that was the reason why we just thought, no, we're not going to build a brewery largely because of money. Um, but also possibly with a slight eye on the future. Um, and that seems to have, that seems to have panned out okay as yeah. a as a I hesitate to use the word strategy. Strategy implies some yeah. kind of yeah. consideration and intelligence, <laughs> which is stretching it ever so slightly. Um, but, but it was yeah. a strategy born out of necessity, really. It was, yeah, because we yeah. didn't build a brewery. And also, me and James don't know, we didn't know how to brew beer, let alone great tasting non-alcoholic beer. So we had to get Johnny in, but we couldn't afford to hire Johnny at the time on a full-time basis. So we're paying him a day rate. And it was only after, you know, 18 months, two years probably of just slogging it out and churning it out that then we started to attract investment and then then we started to build it out into, into a proper company in air quotes. And the, the, the flip side of our amazing uh, non-centralized brewing strategy, um, in inverted commas, um, <laughs> was that, the, the the other main pillar of what defines craft beer is how fresh that beer is. Yeah. Um, and y- you can, um, you know, you can make the best tasting beer not so good if you stick it on a ship for 12 weeks in a non-climate controlled container. Um, so brewing in Australia, brewing in Chicago, brewing in Canada means that we're delivering a lot of beer using local ingredients and a, a local team to local customers, which means that it's as fresh and as it God can forbid, be. And God forbid, should we ever make a profit, we'll pay local taxes as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least the excise tax isn't going to be as high for, for your beverages compared no to juicy, at least. Yeah. But, you know, we, we, you know we'll, we'd happily, happily mm. pay some tax in Australia. Mm. Um or the US or Canada or, or, you know, wherever. Yeah. So just like, it's a slightly different model, but, but it works for us. And those, that first 18 months, were there any moments where it was like, oh shit, this might not work. Or was it a sort of a momentum building of like, oh, I think we're onto something here. For me, it wasn't that, uh, it was, n- I'm just trying to think how to phrase it. It wasn't because I never really for the first 18 months put myself in a position where it would matter if it failed, if you see what right. I mean. So if it failed, then I would have lost money, mm-hmm. but not a life-changing amount of money. Um, the, the flip probably came for me personally a little bit later uh, when I left the law to work at Big Drop full time. When did that happen in the process? At what stage? Uh, reasonably soon. So it was mm. about uh, May 2017. Right. So, yeah, I left the law firm in May. I had twins in June and we moved house in July. That was an epic <laughs> three months. Um, <laughs> You're still sane. <laughs> No, no, he didn't no, take no, up, no. and he didn't take up no, more no. drinking. 
Like if there was I'm ever a stage where Big Drop could have psychotic. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm a nut job. There's no, <laughs> below, below the shoulders. Uh, Rob's wearing a straight jacket. You just can't see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, no, it was when no, it was when I realised probably oh, yeah. about eighteen months after that that it was too. Uh, there was too big a gap for me to go back to the law because law, it, what I was doing was all personal relationship driven. So yeah. I needed to know who everybody was, where they worked, where they liked to drink, where they were hanging out, all that stuff. And after a year and a half, so then that would have been the end of 2019. I was like, I have no idea what's going on in the city of London anymore. It's a point of no so return. This, yeah. So if this goes south now, then, you know, I, I'm sure I can get a job, but um not yeah i can't go back to what i was doing before and did you have a similar experience james or were you sort of you know that more entrepreneurial graphic design can kind yeah, of pick james, up work james only signed an employment contract last week he's, he's, <laughs> <laughs> wow still a lawyer yeah so i i am I, I, I only technically went full-time with big drop at the beginning of september right and i, I i've slowly geared up to it purely from the fact i had two other businesses going at the time and when you know rob approached me back in 2016 i was off doing something else completely different and i've slowly kind of moved myself into a completely big drop um as of last month really i was four days up four days a week up until last month and now now i'm fully fledged full time um and and not from a kind of um treading carefully and going Mm gently it's it's purely more from kind of trying to um hand off my other workload <laughs> and let people down gently um and and now it's kind of you know it, it's a it's a good time for me to come in and and really focus on one thing because or many things for one thing um because it's it's now at a stage where big drops gone from being a, a startup business and being kind of um, having a startup mentality and kind of doing things certain ways and being scrappy with things and and you know making sure stuff happens uh, in, in a slightly more I won't say chaotic way but a slightly um, well just more of a startup mentality of you know not quite to the extent of the Mark Zuckerberg uh, move fast and break things mentality but more towards that end of things but now we're we're a scale up business and it's we've there's uh, over 20 of us in the team now and it's now kind of getting to the stage where you have to change your thinking slightly you have to put processes in place and that sort of thing and it's it's now getting to the point where it, it needs the kind of consistent thought for that yeah, sort of it's, stuff. It's, it's making it's making me a bit sad because it was pointed out to me the other day by rfd that uh i was under budget on my budget for my little, I don't have a big budget in the little things that I do, but she'd put together a budget and she sent through a spreadsheet. She said, Oh, Rob, yeah, you're under budget. And I was like, good. Um, I'll be honest. I wasn't really paying attention to the budget. But <laughs> I'm glad that somebody was paying attention to the budget. Well done. And then James is now trying to convince me to go and use different IT systems and all the other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm totally going to do that. James going to get around to that. Um, we'll get yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you guys have a really good, clear working uh, collaboration together. What have been yeah. some of the other, um, <laughs> in that you just pointed it out, James, that transition from startup scrappy to, okay, big boy pants now. What have been some of the other, uh, I guess, adjustments, we'll say, 
um, that have had to be made in that sort of process. Because I think for a lot of people, that sort of entrepreneurial side, it's not every business gets to that point. And then that yeah. transition for some, especially I've spoken to some entrepreneurs that are your typical creative, they love starting things and they love the independence of being able to just go out there and get shit done and make shit happen. Um, but then when it comes to the, oh, 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 I've got to, I've got to, I've got to manage uh, what's tax. Um, how do I deal? Yeah. Ah, I need that delegation and all that. What have been yeah. some of the, the fun yeah. parts of that for you guys? I think for me, um, it, I, I've, always kind of worked for myself or, or started up my own businesses and done my own kind of thing. And I think it, it's, uh, I wrote a blog post recently and it's about uh, make mistakes that are worthwhile. Um, and it's about learning or making the right mistakes and how to deal with them properly and that sort of thing. And I think that you have to get to a certain point to know when there's things coming up that you just don't know how to do. And you have to bring the people in who have got the big boy pants on. I'm studying here. I'm doing this podcast in my pajama bottoms. So I think that no, that that can perfectly describe uh, the, the trouser wear that I kind of still see myself in. But I think the thing is, is that um, for me and and historically, is knowing when to let go and delegate and know that there's someone in your team that's going to be better at you than handling it, and you have to kind of cast off the over management or micromanagement elements of it and just put your trust in someone else who you've bought into the company to yep. do that thing and you just go okay it's it's is know, that a is that a lesson that you you've learned or like the hard way or had to kind of just adapt over time like how hard has it been to kind of let your baby go into somebody yeah, else's I, hand i i i Honestly, I've never found it that difficult at all. People have said, oh, yeah, you know, you're not doing this and you're not doing that, and now you have to go and do that. Is that really difficult? And I'm like, not really, no, because, because if it was, then and I'm, now I'm going to sound like a wanker, but then, then it would be all about you, and it's not. Like, it's honestly, it's, I'm like, no, no, no. I say to people, it's like, honestly, in how old am I now? 42. I want to go into a pub in 10 years time and be able to order a pint of big drop. But I will be so happy if I have literally nothing to do with the company at that point in time, because that just means that grown up people have made that happen. And as I said, right at the very, very beginning, I had an idea that that was the idea, but I didn't try and do all of it because mm immediately then i went to talk to james yeah and then immediately after that we went and found johnny yeah and then yeah. while well, we four or five years in we've and we've got a and this is like the non-sexy very unhilarious stuff that comes with trying to run a company we've got a marketing director who worked at jägermeister for donkey's years we've got a commercial director who worked at diageo for donkey's years I've got a finance director who worked at FMCG startups. She's taken stuff to, from level X to level Y. We've got a sales team who know what they're doing. We've got an operations team who know what they're doing. That's non-hilarious and unsexy, but completely and absolutely essential yeah. for making sure that in the mm. fullness of time, the three of us one day will meet for a beer in Sydney or Melbourne or London or Chicago and we will go into a bar and order a pint of Big Drop. And I will have had almost sod all to do with that beer getting into that pint glass, other than having had, hopefully, what people think 
was a decent idea in 2015. And if you don't, if you can't, if you can't separate yourself as an ego from that vision and that mission, then you're an idiot, in mm. my humble opinion. Mm. You took the yeah. words right out of my mouth. I was just literally going to say that, that lack of ego. And I think it's, there's a really clear parallel between your brewing strategy, decentralized, and your leadership strategy, decentralized. It's not built around a personality. It's not built around a certain brewer. It's decentralized, no. meaning that it can adapt anywhere. It can be nimble. It can adjust because yeah. it's yeah. not hinging on one person. Yeah, and the, and you, and we we will have these chats, and I'll talk to anyone who will listen to me, and I'll say, yeah, this is why I had the idea, and this is why I thought this, and then you know me, James, and Johnny. But over and above that, you know, then it's then it's about you know, <laughs> and then, and then like I said, it's like it's unsexy and unhilarious, but then it's just cold hard economics and commercials and getting beer into pumps and convincing people how to buy it, and that's not my shtick so you, you you have to you have to separate yourself from that you have mm. to and recognizing your own gaps and having courage and the yeah, yeah lack of it you got to go out and ask that. other people to fill those yeah that's like I, I went to james and i sat down and said right let's have a beer this is my idea i don't know anything about social media i know nothing about tech i know nothing about branding these are things that you do know about would you like to go into business like that's the immediately it's just like there you go i'm not, i can't do this myself that's crazy. That's and what was the trickiest part of the startup? Was there any sort of moment? Like, was there anything that kind of caught you by surprise, or was it all just you know you kept bringing in experts and it just kind of kept chugging along? The 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 trickiest, purely logistical part was finding um, brewers who could produce the right amount of volume at the right stage of growth. That, that, that was probably, that's a really boring thing. Um, and it took me a long time to find even somewhere that could do small volumes. Um, they, they didn't really, they still don't really exist as companies in the UK because small volumes in beer are not economical. It doesn't, that's, yeah. it doesn't make financial sense to make small batches of beer on a contract basis. You can do it on a craft basis and you charge a premium for all the love, care and attention that goes into that beer. And that's absolutely fine. But on a contract basis, that doesn't work um so me and johnny particularly would spend lots of time trying to talk to breweries and plug runs into their um um uh, their production timetables and all the rest of it that was that was hard for uh yeah probably until the end of middle middle of 2019 i think when then contract breweries started taking us seriously because we would turn up and say, yeah, no, I'll take a hundred hex. And actually you should pay attention to me as a customer because next month, I think I'm going to do a hundred hex. And then I might not do another hundred hex after that, but month after that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of just build up that um, mm. reputation with the suppliers such that they will sit down and pay attention to you as a customer and give you the time and take it seriously to, yeah and take it seriously and then you know do, do all those lovely things and now we're in a great position so that say so yeah no look every month i'm going to do four five six hundred hectolitres of beer and then they go oh fuck right yeah that's good volume i'm going to mm. listen to you but yeah certainly in the early days from a very logistical boring operational perspective it was it was scaling it uh me and johnny yeah we went around a lot of different breweries in the uk 
trying to get them to listen to it. And some of them listened to us and some of them were really, really friendly. Others were not interested, but um, that was, yeah, that was probably the biggest operational challenge. Mm. Why do you think it is that nobody else had done it before? Because nobody starts a craft brewery to make non-alcoholic beer. Craft craft beer started like the whole, the whole, Shajam, that's a word, Shajam. That's mm, just it is now. Yeah. I'll put it on a T-shirt. Jam. It's a jam. Yeah, the whole, the whole Shajam. Yep. So I'm going to start a condiment company one day, like jam, but with glitter in it, and it's just yeah. going to be called Shajam. Shajam. Thank you very much. Trademark, yeah. trademark, timeout, timeout. Time out. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> you you can register it first. How, that, that would be really ironic if, you know, you came up with the name of Big Drop. But I came up with the name of Shajam. Just flip it around. Okay. Um, three jam. What, it's the next name. You've changed roles. What was I talking Why has no one done it before? Oh, yeah. My uncle yeah. Byrne asked me this once. And I said, um, it's because craft beer was a reaction against big beer. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what the brands are in Australia, but, you know, in the UK in the mid 90s, you go into a pub and you can buy a pint of Guinness, a pint of Stella Artois, a pint of Carlsberg. That's it. And yeah. everyone was like, well, this is just really boring, so we're going to make craft beer. But it was a reaction against that, but people went into it because perfectly understandably they wanted to make alcoholic beer that they wanted to drink. They didn't go into it to um, fill that niche. And it just mm-hmm. took a little bit of time before. And it wasn't, you know, it's not just us. You know, there's people in the US have done it. There's, there's people in Europe have done it have just gone, oh, yeah, okay, look. This this makes sense. There's a little niche here. Why is no one doing this? Let's let's do it. So I think it just took a bit of time for craft beer to mature as a sector before someone else then came along and went, okay, look, there's another little bit here that we can do. Mm. Yep. And do you think that like the drinking culture overall has changed over time as well and maybe opened people up to it a bit more? Or um I, I think there's two elements to it really i think probably the the, the drinking culture of the 90s uh particularly in the uk doesn't really exist anymore where you'd go out and have to say you'd have the mentality that the, the bell rings at 11 p.m and you need to be at a certain momentum when that bell rings because you're going home after that or you're going to go to a friend's house and carry on drinking there's probably not a lot of other options you can have to go and do that and that's probably the drinking culture that you know, that was the drinking culture that Rob and I were into. We'd go to the pub, we'd go to the Spread Eagle on a Friday night. Everyone would be there and you'd just go and, and that would be it. And if you were smashed by the end of the evening, fantastic, job done. Um, I, I think that uh, that still exists in certain amounts, but it's not the kind of mass culture thing of, of how it was. Um, but people like that our age now, we're, Rob and I are both in our 40s, we've, you know, a bit more mindful about what we're drinking and, and and what we're doing. We can't maintain the same momentum that we had 20 plus years ago. So that that's one end of the audience. The other end of the audience is people who drink less, but drink better. So the, the millennials will drink a better quality drink and less of it. So rather than buying the, a, a cheap bottle of, I don't know what the equivalent is in Australia. If you have it, it's something called mad dog, uh, you'll have a bottle of that rather than that, but people will buy, go out and buy a bottle of Grey Goose and enjoy it. 
and there'll be less led onto drinking to excess but drinking because of quality and because of social media points and that sort of thing um and somewhere between that mix is our our target audience really and we we don't specifically go after a particular set of people because of the choice and the lifestyle that people live is theirs and we can fit into what that what that means to them love it i love it and where do you see this brand growing is this a you know your last bit or you you know is there other business ideas in the works that you guys are wanting to work on together or yeah yeah shajam so shajam yeah (laughs) you heard it it here first glittery jam glittery jam so rob you made your money in big drop non-alcoholic beer but i understand now you're in shajam a glittery jam business is that right yes it is it is actually david and where did you get the idea well i was on a podcast in australia (laughs) and i came up with the name shajam you people wanted Glittery jam. I didn't know yeah, I wanted it, but now I want it. Hey, Brendan, yeah. they, laughed, they laughed at me six years ago when I was talking about Big Drop. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Um, we'll start crowdfunding when, uh, now. Where, I'll invest. Uh, where, do we, where, where do we see it? I always go back to the story, uh, or not the story, but the thing that I've got in my head, and it is true, and it goes back to this point about choice, is that, you know, the three of us go into a pub and you say, yeah, I'll have a, a, a gin and tonic, a red wine and a pint of big drop. And that's it. And then you so just get that round of drinks in the pub. Nobody says anything. Bar person doesn't say, Oh, you know, that's a non-alcoholic beer. Don't you? And you, you don't say to James, Oh, are you drinking non-alcoholic beer? Oh, what's the matter? What's the matter with you? We just, we just enjoy our drinks. And yes, yeah. That for me is where I see the brand, and yeah. what you know, yeah, whether that's in fifty countries or four, or you know, employing seven hundred people or seventy is is by the by. For, for me, it's about allowing people access to it, allowing them choice, and just removing any kind of stigma around the the fact that you might drink a beer that happens to be 0.5% ABV instead of, you know, as some, I was talking, I talked to a journalist in Chicago and he was like, yeah, but it's not really beer, is it? And I was like, no, no, it really is. It really is beer because it's, it's just beer. We just brew it. It just yeah. happens it's, it's, that the ABV is 0.5. It's the very definition it? of what is a beer. It, it, yeah. It's and he beer. said, yeah, but it's not really beer, is it? And I said, well, okay, oh. well, but when does it become beer then? hundred percent. And there's a lot of... Yeah. Is it one percent? Is that beer? Who's like, yeah. oh, it's, yeah, like, it's, it's like saying an electric car is not a car. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> have seats and a steering wheel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and wheels. Yep. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Do you yeah. get yeah. in it to go somewhere? Yep. Yeah. Is it on yeah. a train track? No. Oh, then it's okay. not a train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a train. Is it on the water? No. Okay, it's not a boat. Right. What is it then? Is it a car? Yeah, it's a car. Right. Shut it's up. Car. Move on. <laughs> have legs? No. Okay, it's a. It's a <laughs> 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 oh, that's the next idea. Car with legs. Car with legs. With Man, we or are on horse. fire tonight. <laughs> um, a strider or something. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like something out of a video game. But it comes back to that whole thing around like what's a deal and, and what's a craft. I was listening to a podcast um, the other day oh, and right. they were talking about like at what scale do you stop being craft? Because obviously here in Australia, um, the biggest independent craft brewer just got bought yeah, out by... Yeah, by Lion Nathan, um, part yeah. of Kieran. 
and it's got so many feathers ruffled. But then there's a few people who are like, well, yeah, that, like you said, it's the scalability. You want to be able yeah. to get it into more hands of more people and get people yeah. accessing your product. Yeah. You need scale. You need capital. Where's that money going to come from? Someone's got to pay for the shit. Like, doesn't just and it's, it's subjective. It's completely yeah. subjective. It's the same. It's the same argument of whether you whether you believe Andy Warhol is art or not, or or yeah. Rothko or whatever artist you choose, or you, you argue whether Band X sold yeah. out and what selling They're out not means punk anymore. Yeah. yeah, it's like what you know. What what does all that mean? It's it's completely subjective, mm. and you can say about say about craft brewing, and I don't think you're ever going to get to a position where everyone will completely agree what craft is. And you know, some people will say, well, craft is the level of care that you put into brewing it, and it doesn't matter who owns it, but the process is exactly the same. If you care about what you're making, and you have a process where you absolutely put everything into it, surely that's craft. And other people will go, no, because they're brewing over a certain amount of hectoliters. But you but could say well, someone that brews under that, yeah. yeah, someone that brews under that level of hectoliters might not care or give a shit about what they're brewing. Is that yeah. craft? Is it, yeah, you can have me and James could have bought a tiny little brew kit and put it in a shed and be churning out shitty beer. But because we're small, does that make us craft? No, it, that that's nonsensical. Also, mm. I like I just got to mention this because I do like this, and I've never found the article. But he's a lovely guy. Pete Brown is a beer writer in the UK. And when um, Goose Island in Chicago sold to um, AB InBev, AB in yeah. same, same sort of thing, same sort of thing. Feathers were ruffled. You're not craft anymore. And he said, ah, right, okay, this is a really interesting metaphysical question because I've got a can of Goose Island in my fridge and I bought it before AB InBev <laughs> bought that brewery. <laughs> so is that can of beer still craft beer? Or is it no longer craft beer? And if it's no longer craft beer, when did it cease becoming craft beer? And I thought that's a very wonderful yeah. example. Can you define the intent of that can? This is the example of how stupid yeah. the argument is. Yeah. Yeah. Does when it does taste it... any different now? Yeah, that's uh, it. No. No, it's exactly <laughs> the same beer. Because it was made before. Yeah, anyway. That's like, is that it. the hill that we really want to die on? And you, get, you talk to yeah. some people and it's just, you know, some publicans I chat to is like, yep, we're pulling them off tap because they sold. I'm like, okay. Was it, how how was sales going beforehand? Oh, yeah. sales are going really well. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So you're now going to put another unknown brand on that's going to sell less. Do you know it's actually going to like cost you money and make it harder to pay your bills? And like, but and uh, sure, no worries. But then when you complain that you know the pub's not making enough money and da da, it's like cool. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's way yeah. It's the economy of it if you actually looked at it. Um, it's it's a fascinating I think, I one. Think it's- for me, it's one of those things where there's like, there's a place for everything. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, th- there is now a very highly educated, highly engaged audience of beer drinkers who will now not want to drink that beer because they do want to drink independently owned and independently run breweries and the beers mm. that they're producing. And that's fine. Yeah. Because the fact that that audience is there means that those smaller breweries, hopefully, touch wood, if they're making great beer, will survive. But equally, you, you've got some passionate founders and some passionate people at that company that want to take those beers into the hands of more people to spread the word about mm-hmm. you know, what great craft beer can taste like, and that's okay too. And I don't see I don't see it as mutually exclusive. I, I just think it's like, no. yeah, okay, they've they've moved on to a different chapter in their existence, and if you, the drinker, mm-hmm. don't want to drink them anymore. 
that's fine. Don't. That's okay, because they're transparent about it. It's not like they're not hiding the transaction. It's been all over the press. So, you know, anyway. Yeah. I think that puts you guys in a really good place because you've started from the outset from being decentralized and you're not building the narrative of the brand around an individual or around a specific brewery, which gives you that autonomy to be able to be wherever, when it, like it's great strategy, guys. It's was well played. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. And again, let's not overplay the word strategy. I feel that's uh... (laughs) small less. (laughs) I go with, I go with more luck than judgment. That's how I pitch it. More luck than judgment. I love it. I love it. I think that's a great note to end it on, guys. I really just want to thank you for your time, for staying up late past bedtimes. Thank you for getting up early. I was already awake to come and do this. You had to get up. (laughs) I've had so much coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks heaps, guys. And thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Rob and James from Big Drop. Have a great day, guys. See you later.